Father, it is a gift to have another year, to have your word work within us, to turn us from our many sins and to turn us face to face to see our Savior, Jesus. Uh, would you now, even as we pay attention to this passage long written down, would you work within each of us? Would you clear the way so that this day we could have the joy of Jesus present in our hearts? The joy of a heart freed from our sins and satisfied by his salvation. We pray these things in his mighty name. Amen. What well, the ho holidays in the rearview mirror, I know many of us had opportunities to head out on the open roads, going from point A to point B to be with family. Really, we do so so easily these days, thanks to these wonderful things called highways. You know that wonderful feeling? I don't know if you like it like I do, just getting on the highway, getting up to the speed limit, of course, <laughs> getting up to speed and just driving and driving for miles and miles on end. Well, it turned out it wasn't always that easy. Uh, back in 1919, there was a soldier by the name of Eisenhower who traveled all the way from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco, California in a military convoy. It was really a test to see how difficult would it be to go from one coast to the other. It turned out back then it was pretty difficult. Uh, that military convoy quickly found out that the U.S. had a patchwork of road systems with potholes and narrow mountain passages and, and tunnels that were not adequate for big trucks to go through. It was a perilous, difficult, and long journey. That's why years later, after Eisenhower became president, he had an idea, a grand idea, a highway system that would let people go from coast to coast with ease. Uh, that highway's project what turned out to cost something like $50 billion. And over the course of 30 years, he built 45,000 miles of roads. The roads you and I take for granted as we go see Mama on Christmas and New Year's. Uh, I, we love that idea of an open road before us to be able to travel freely. But it took a major project for that to happen. Uh, our passage this morning has before us a, a highway project of a very different sort, uh, not with concrete roads, but made up of contrite hearts, uh, a highway fit for the very king of kings to come heart to heart to meet his people as they turn from their sins and turn back to their God. Uh, we come to a, a very pivotal moment in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we have been looking at the infancy passages, the, the beginnings of the life of both John and Jesus. And, and now we're switching into a new section. Not to the beginnings of their lives, but to the beginnings of their ministry. We see John's call to clear the way, to prepare hearts to receive Jesus. And, and as we do, we're going to learn together that we need to prepare the way. Yes, to receive Christ today. Uh, we'll see that in two points as we move through this passage, two sections. First, in 1 through 6, we'll see John's mission to clear the way. John's mission to clear the way. And second, in 7 through 14, we'll see John's message, repent this day. John's message, repent this day. And as we do this, we will see that even for us, on this very day, 
that we can make way for Christ, find his salvation and the satisfaction only he will bring. Let's begin in that first section, John's mission to clear the way. As you grow up, you come to realize that the world is a complicated place. Uh, maybe it seemed easy growing up to think that there are certain bad people and certain good people, and you want to be on the side of the good people to make sure that the bad people can't do bad things. And then as you begin to understand more of the world, you realize, wait a second, things are more complicated than they appear. Now, certainly that was the case 2,000 years ago. And as John, uh, Luke introduces us to this early period of John and Jesus' ministry, he wants us to know exactly the time and place to which they started that ministry. And it bears the hallmarks of real life because it's a time of chaos, confusion, and yes, lots and lots of complications. Uh, John, uh, Luke starts us off by telling us uh, the place to which these ministries start by listing off seven officials in those first two verses. Uh, he starts at the, the highest level of authority, the furthest removed from your everyday Israelite, to the person closest to the place in which they lived. Uh, he tells us it was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Uh, Caesar was the unquestioned ruler of the Roman world, and Tiberius had been sitting in that seat for about 15 years. Now, if you were a Jew living in that day, you very likely did not know Caesar personally. And yet, the decisions he made had a bearing on your life in a proximate way, because he was in charge of the whole empire of which your country was a small part. Uh, it's a bit like how you know of the President of the United States, even if you likely don't know him personally. And through the news and the way the rules in the land are changed, you, you know of the way that his authority comes to bear on your life. So it was with Caesar. And underneath Caesar were people that were closer to the everyday Israelites. There was a guy named Pontius Pilate. Uh, he was governor of the region of Judea, which basically meant he was the administrator. He would manage the roads and the taxes. His job was to keep everything running smoothly and to make sure there was no rebellions or uprisings. If he did his job right, then the generals wouldn't get involved. That was a key point. He was always fearful that the military might step in, step in and take his power from him if he didn't do, th do things well. There's a, a, a third wing to the power structures of the day, Herod. Now, Herod's really a family name. There are multiple Herods. Uh, the Herod that was described in the infancy narratives, like in Matthew's gospel, is the father of this current Herod. This Herod's name is Herod Antipas. Uh, he was really a patsy for the Romans. He was under the rule of the Romans, but he was a Jew. And so that gave the Romans a sense of credibility, as if the Jews had some sort of self-rule. But Herod was not very popular with the people, and he was cruel and knew how to make sure he stayed in power. Well, alongside these political players, there are two religious ones we're told about. This is happening during the time when both Annas and Caiaphas are high priests. Uh, there was really only one high priest at a time, but much like how we refer to a former president as a president, 
uh, the, the, uh, Annas no longer was in office, and yet he was still referred to as a high priest. Now, they would be in charge of all of the religious matters related to a faithful Israelite. Now, why is all this important? Well, it's because it puts what's about to happen into the context of a real place and a real time in history. Now, if you were making up a story, you wouldn't bother to, to go into this level of complexity into your detail. But Luke, being that detail-oriented doctor, tells us precisely the time and situation that the ministries of John and Jesus are going to start. It was a time when the Jews were under the thumb of the Romans, but it was more complicated than that. Because they had their own rulers and their own priests, and they're all looking out for their own interests and their own power. And at the end of the day, as complicated as it all was, God's people were in a place of corruption and suffering. And that's the, uh, that's the point where John is given a very important task, to clear the way for the coming of Christ. Luke transitions to John there in verse 3, uh, sorry, verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Uh, last time we saw John, he was a child, and we were just told that he grew up and went off and lived in the wilderness until the, the time his ministry started. Well, about 30 years has passed, and John is now a grown man. And just like the prophets of old that have preceded him, John is receiving a word, a message, and a mission from God. Uh, what is that mission? Well, we get a little snapshot of it in verse 3. He went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, John shows up, and he is quite a show. He lives out in the wilderness. He, he's eating bugs and wearing a strange getup and preaching a message unlike a message anyone has preached for 400 years. He's telling people they need to turn from their sins and be baptized. Now, we're familiar with baptism because it's an ordinance given to us by Jesus. But Jews back in that day, they didn't practice baptisms for forgiveness in, in any way like this. This was something new. What did John mean by it? Uh, well, next week we're going to go deeper into the specifics of John's baptism. But Luke gives us a little primer on what John's ministry was meant to do. You might say what, what his mission is. By quoting a series of verses from Isaiah 40. That's what you see in verses 4 through 6. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And then you have this quotation from Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. And every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. If you take the time to study the book of Isaiah, which you should, there's a theme running through it. A theme of a highway that is one day going to be built. See, a lot of Isaiah's prophecies are looking to a day when God's people have been taken off into exile. They have ran far away from God through their sins. And so God has sent them far away physically from his rule and his place by taking them off into exile in Babylon. Uh, that left God's people without hope 
and without a way back to the place of promise. But God had good news. That exile wouldn't last forever. Uh, one day, God would open up a clear path for his people to come back. Uh, five times in Isaiah, God talks about preparing a, a highway through the desert for the peoples to stream back to God. People coming back to the heart of God and back into the place where they know they'll find his rule and his reign. I'll, I'll give you one example that sums it up well. This is Isaiah 35, verses 8 through 10. Isaiah 35, 8. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Running through the prophecies of Isaiah is this promise that God one day will open up a way for his people to come back to his heart and to his place of promise. What's interesting, though, of all the prophecies about this highway coming, there's only one in which that highway is not for God's people to return to him, but for God to come and get his people. Can you guess which one it is? It's Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 describes that great highway prepared not just for people to walk down, but for the great king himself to come and rescue his people. So that all would see the salvation of their God. What is John's ministry about? What is this wild man wearing strange clothes and eating strange food and acting like a prophet that people haven't seen for 400 years? What is happening in all of this? Well, God is making a way. Clearing the path so that the Christ can come and rescue his people from their sins. Well, how's that going to happen, though? Well, that's what brings us to our second point this morning. John's message, repent this day. Repent this day in verses 7 through 14. See, John is essentially the foreman of a building project to build this straight and clear path so that Jesus can come and rescue people. Uh, but this building, will, th this uh, road will not be built out of concrete. Instead, it will be built out of contrite hearts that show concrete actions of repentance. Uh, verse 7 tells us that there were crowds coming to John. Uh, they were coming to him to be baptized. You might think that would make a prophet or a preacher like John happy. But look at the way he greets them in verse 7. His first words to them, You brood of vipers! Not exactly a sugar-coated message now, is it? Why is this? Because John knows the problem this people has, and he sees the obstacles that need to be cleared out of the way if they are to be able to receive the joy of Jesus one day. Uh, he knows that they are a sin-sick people. Uh, remember back in your Old Testament, snakes have a negative connotation to them. 
in the garden, it was the serpent that deceived Eve and then Adam. Uh, and serpents have the emblem of sin emblazoned onto them. So to call someone a brood of vipers, a group of someone's a group of uh, brood of vipers, is in essence to say you're a lot that is filled with that venom of sin. Your hearts are desperately sick. But even more than that, John understands that there are a series of misunderstandings with these people that he needs to clear up if they are able to turn to Christ in true repentance. Uh, you see, there is such thing as false repentance. People who think that they are sorry for their sins, think that in fact that they are getting right with God and it turns out their hearts are still far from him. Uh, Precious and I are from South Florida and so we grew up with lots and lots of very strange headlines. South Florida is a really strange place. Um, one of the strangest has to be what happened back in 1991. There was a drug dealer by the name of Salvador Magluda who had finally, it seemed, been brought to justice. Uh, the local authorities and eventually the FBI figured out that he was a drug kingpin. So they set up wiretaps, they did stings, they did years worth of research, and finally they caught him. They, they got him in court and they laid out an airtight case. There's no way this guy was going to get off. And then, after days and days of deliberating, the, the jury came back and cleared him on every single count. Every court reporter was shocked. This was not even close to a, a, a possibility. This was an airtight case. And uh, I remember the, the, this clip from TV. As Magluda comes out of the courtroom, he's got a huge smile on his face, and he says, I believe in miracles. God is good. I've changed my ways. I'm a holy man now. This is proof that God forgives. And then he hopped in a car and he drove away. Well, on the surface, that sounds like a wonderful Christian message, doesn't it? But of course, not so much. Uh, uh, the days ahead became obvious that Magluda had not changed his ways. In fact, he went right back to drug dealing. And years later, the authorities would unravel a scheme that had bought off not one, not two, but three of the jurors, resulting in his acquittal on that day. See, it's very possible to give the appearance that you are contrite, that you are sorry, that even that you are serious about reforming your heart, and yet for your heart to be every bit as wicked as uh, it was before you uttered a word. John knows this. And he sees this people coming to him bearing the marks of false repentance. So he gives them stark warnings. What are the problems they have? Well, the first is there are people that are being fooled by formal religion. Uh, he recognizes that some of them are coming, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, sometimes people get a little scared when they start to feel the pangs of guilt in their heart. So they try to make themselves not feel guilty by doing some religious actions. Pray a certain prayer, do some religious rituals, go to a holy site. Well, John, remember, came preaching but also baptizing. And he knew that some of these people were coming hoping that this act of baptism would cause these bad feelings to just go away. 
That's the first obstacle he needed to clear. The second is the, that some of these people were being fooled by their heritage. He, he warns them not to think that just because we have Abraham as our father that they're okay. No, no, no. Just because you belong to the right family does not mean you are right with God. Uh, if God wanted to, he could have wiped out the entire Jewish nation and made an entire new group of people out of stones. After all, he's the God who created all of us. Just because you are, are uh, related by blood or proximity to someone who is known for being righteous does not mean you're right with God. There's a third mistake that John uh, realizes that needs to be cleared away. And that is that these people are being fooled by complacency. Because judgment has not come for them yet, they assume it never will come. They assume that maybe I'll repent one day, but not today. That's a problem for tomorrow or the day after or when I'm old and gray. So John warns them in stark terms. He, he tells them, you're, you're like a tree that has a, a lumberjack swinging at it with a hatchet again and again and again. And frankly, I don't know how many more swings you have left until you come toppling over. Uh, what John's telling them with vivid images is at any moment, judgment could come for them. And at that moment, they, it would be their undoing unless they would repent. In stark terms, John tells them, what you are doing will not lead you to forgiveness. Now, what you need here is a contrite heart that expresses itself in concrete actions. You see, the, true repentance has marks that go with it. If you are truly sorrowful over your sin, if you're truly before God wanting to transform your ways, then it will be evident in the way in which you live. Uh, that's what he shifts to in verses 10 through 14, telling them the exact ways in which they could, in concrete actions, demonstrate re true repentance. Uh, there are three different groups of people and come and finally ask the right question. What then shall we do? What shall we do if we have to repent? Tell us, how do we do this? Uh, the first is the most general people that, of any type who have more than one tunic. That's the basic garment that everyone was expected to wear. If you have two, that means you have one more than you absolutely need. John tells them, okay, don't hoard it for yourself. Give it to someone who's in need. Uh, next up are people that everyone would know would be sinners, tax collectors. Uh, they, were considered to, uh, they were considered to have betrayed uh, the Jewish people because they had a position collecting taxes for Rome. If that wasn't bad enough, they would take the taxes that Rome required plus their own fees on top of it, which Rome gave them the discretion to charge whatever they wanted. Well, if you give that sort of freedom to a sinful heart, you can understand what would happen. They charge exorbitant fees. So God's people were left penniless and feeling betrayed in the process. How is it that a tax collector can truly repent before God? Well, according to John, it's by not charging more than they are authorized to do. Don't defraud people 
just because you have the freedom to do so. Third group are soldiers. They wielded the sword. And that meant they had great authority. They could detain people. They could shake people down. And oftentimes soldiers were known for doing just that, extorting money from people who were less powerful than them. They come and they ask John, how is it that we should repent? And he says, stop shaking people down. Instead, just be content with your wages. Now, recognize in all of this, John is not teaching that repenting somehow earns you forgiveness with God. Uh, That by ceasing to do sinful actions and instead doing righteous actions, that somehow you cancel out the debt of your sins. That's not at all what John is doing. Because remember, John is merely a man sent to clear the way, to get the obstacles off the highway of the king as he comes heart to heart with his people. John is preparing hearts to meet Jesus, the one who will forgive us from our sins. Uh, Jesus won't do that because we have repented hard enough or well enough. Now, Jesus will do that wholly on the basis of what he accomplishes, based on his perfect life given as a sacrifice for sinners, his life for our life, his blood to cleanse us from our sins. Uh, Jesus accomplishes everything needed at the cross and then the resurrection to be able to forgive us and offer us eternal life. But friends, the forgiveness Jesus offers will only be found by those who turn to him in repentance. You see, that word repentance at its essence is really a turning. It's a turning away from your sin and turning to God. What John was preaching is the same thing that the apostles would one day preach. That you need to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. And you will find all the forgiveness that you could ever possibly need. Now brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, recognize that you have received this forgiveness through the highway that John was beginning to prepare on that day. That the route into your heart... It was open to Christ on the day that you turned from your sin and turned to Christ. On that day, you found to be true what we sang about earlier. That when you run to Jesus in the midst of the sorrow of your sin, you will find in his arms a a welcome embrace and yes, a thousand charms. You'll find forgiveness and joy and satisfaction. Never forget That is what Jesus has brought you when you turn to him in faith. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, at its basis, most basic, this message is one of warning. Uh, John warned that there is going to be a revealing that happens one day. A day when each one of our hearts will be revealed either to be genuine in turning to God or to be a fraud, one that has never repented of its sins and one that's already condemned as a result. Uh, The Bible tells us that it's appointed to each man to live once and to then face the judgment. That one day, all of our lives will come to an end. Either that happens because we grow old enough and our hearts stop beating, Or that happens because Jesus comes back and ushers in that final judgment. Either way, all of us will face the same thing. 
an accounting before God. Uh, Friend, John's warning is that unless you have truly repented of your sins and, and found forgiveness in Christ, that day will be a great calamity for you, like the crashing of a giant tree. It will come upon you suddenly. There'll be no time for you to go back and correct your mistake. That you need to repent today while there's time so that that day won't be a day of eternal sorrow for you. Uh, Friend, if you've never done that, you can do that this day. No matter how badly you've sinned against God or how much you've been putting off trying to think about it, if today you genuinely desire to be forgiven and are willing to renounce all of your sin and turn to Jesus, friend, you'll find both salvation and full satisfaction in the arms of Jesus like every other Christian. Now, for those of us that are Christians, I think that there are two other lessons that we need to draw from this passage, though. It's the the new year, which means this is a time when so many of us are thinking about changes we're going to make in our lives. Uh, New Year's resolutions. New Year's resolutions aren't all bad, and yet oftentimes they're a bit inadequate. Because in essence, New Year's resolutions are us saying we're just going to try harder to be better this year in some way or the other. But let me give you some advice that I think applying from this passage would be fruitful for all of us to do. Now, realistically, as a Christian, you will not go through 2022 without committing a single sin. None of us are going to be sinless unless the Lord Jesus were to come back immediately. Each and every one of us will have less than a perfect 2022. But something that you can do is resolve to repent quickly when you do sin. Do you know that nagging feeling of things not being right? That weight of sorrow? That guilt and shame? When for a time you walk in sin and you don't repent and come back to God the way you know you should? Now, every time that you have lived through a season like that as a Christian and that you have repented, you've been glad you've done so. The joy you experience after you have come before the Lord and laid it all bare, admitted you were in the wrong, and asked him to forgive you, the joy on the other end of that is always worth the pain of repenting, isn't it? So just take this moment, the beginning of 22, to resolve. I know I'm not going to be sinless this year but maybe I can repent faster than I did last year. Maybe as soon as I catch myself in the midst of a a sinful thought pattern, maybe as soon as I catch myself speaking in a way I know I shouldn't, maybe as soon as I catch myself getting caught up in all of my plans and not stopping to consider what God might want for me to do, I take this moment to remind myself to turn from that sin and turn back to Christ. I wonder if 2022 might be a whole lot more joyful for all of us if we repent quickly whenever we notice our sins. Uh, Secondly, I I don't think it's by accident that the concrete actions John uh, laid out for us are laid the way they are. And I think that leads us to examining two very important areas in our lives. Uh, The first would be our money. Do you notice how all three of the groups of people that John gave 
direct, concrete ways to repent, they all had to do with the way they used their material possessions. Uh, If we're honest, one of the chief sins of American Christians has to be almighty dollar. Which means it's a good thing for us to ask ourselves, are we honoring the Lord with the way we use our treasure? Now, there's different ways you can come out that. You can check your checking account and see what percentage is going where. Or before the Lord, you can just ask him, am I holding on to what you've given me too tightly? Uh, Regardless, I think all of us need to uh, uh, regularly do a, a bit of a spiritual audit in the way we spend our money. Now, if you want some practical advice and really concrete ways to do this, again, let me recommend to you that core class coming up, uh, Simple Money. I believe it's not this Wednesday, but the Wednesday after. Is that right? All right. Um, We'd love for you to join in with that, and that will get as practical as it can be on how you can make sure that you are honoring the Lord in your stewardship of the finances he's given you. Second way, did you notice how all three of those concrete Acts of repentance had to do with relationships with other people. Some way or the other, these all had to do with how you treat other people. Jesus will later in John's gospel, uh, Luke's gospel tell us that he who's forgiven much loves much. That if you know that you're forgiven, if you've truly repented, then you will be forgiving and ready to forgive others. One of the hardest parts of being a Christian, isn't it? Knowing that you are called to forgive when someone sins against you. Maybe you have a grudge on the ledger from 2021. And this morning the Lord is reminding you to turn away from the blockage in your, the highway of your heart. To make way for Jesus by forgiving that person and finding the joy of knowing that you are in right standing with him. I think this is one of the reasons for us to be so careful about the fellowship in our church. We need other Christians and a big test in how we're doing spiritually is the way we treat other Christians. When you get together for small group or when you spend an evening with a Christian friend, ask yourself, am I being kind and Christ-like to this person? Am I reflecting the reality of a heart that has repented and is forgiven? If not, maybe there's a new layer. You need to clear the way so that Christ can come and dwell within you today. Brothers and sisters, the good news in all of this is when we repent, whether it's for the first time as someone becoming a Christian on this very day, or as someone who's walked with the Lord and who has fallen into the same pattern year after year, when we repent, we know Jesus is eager to receive us, to restore us, to bring us face to face and heart to heart with him through that highway that he had sent John to prepare. Contrite hearts with concrete actions. Brothers and sisters, that is the good news that you can have Jesus and leave your sin behind. There is a highway that was prepared for a king. Uh, In London, that is, there was a a place called the King's Road. Uh, Back in 1694, Charles II had it built. 
uh, it was a private special road just for him and his friends to be able to travel down. Because if you're an important enough king, you want to make sure there's not anything in your way when you go and visit a friend. Friend, do you realize that Christ has made sure that there is a highway into your heart, a way for him to come and turn you away from all the things that are sapping your joy and to restore to you, yes, salvation and satisfaction? Would you clear the way and would you turn to Christ today? Let's pray.